Hey everybody and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at Skullknight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me today for episode 143 are Azeel. Hey! Grail. Hello! And Gobola Tula. Hello! I don't know, I could probably Google this. Did they have Renaissance fairs in France? Not really. They wouldn't call them Renaissance fairs, they'd probably call them like old... Old year fairs or old times. Yeah, we don't really have that kind of stuff, but we have places that do like medieval type stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Gobs and grails went. They have bird shows. And there's a there's a place like it's a, it's an amusement park basically called uh, Le Puy du Fou, but it's it's it doesn't have like rides. It's mm-hmm. just actors in costumes and stuff like that, and so it's it's kind of it's got a Catholic edge to it. So you're kind of being. Like subtly or not so subtly fed, uh, <laughs> so kind of Catholic uh, propaganda. Is this Catholic Disneyland? Yeah, and, and you know French King stuff. It's, it's stuff like that. But basically, you don't have to care about it. You just go there to see people on horseback doing stunts and fighting each other, and guys not throwing fireballs. But there's, there's some some cool stuff like that. They've got a Roman one. Like in the in a replica of the Coliseum, they've got one with like Vikings attacking a French village and being fought back and stuff like that. Oh, that's awesome! And, and they've they've one with uh, the um, you know Arthurian legend where they actually pull out the sword from the rock and stuff like that. And they've got bird shows and they've got shows with a variety of animals. So yeah, we we've got places that do this kind of stuff, and so that one's pretty big uh, because it's a like I said, it's an amusement park in of itself. But then various little places and you know touristic spots have got uh, yeah their own little shows and stuff like that. But we don't have Renaissance fairs as you guys do in the U.S. Like if you ask a French person, they wouldn't even know what what, what you're talking about. In Maryland, where I live, they have a big like dedicated a whole like little village to that stuff. It's I think it's open like. Three months out of the year. Anyway, it's that's in season now. Um, and I think I was there. It was pre-pandemic the last time I went. And I remember there was a guy dressed as Golden Age Guts Whoa. there. But he had a dragon slayer with him. Hmm. Uh, and I remember saying like something like to him. I said, like, I see you. I see you. And he's like, huh? I'm like, you know, your, your outfit, your guts and all that. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, but that's not his sword. And he said something like, well, yeah, but it's the, the two best parts, right? It is the Golden Age Guts and the Dragon Slayer. I got the two best parts. I'm like, huh. You're like, Man, do you know who you're talking yeah, to? Yeah, he, he ran into the <laughs> wrong guy that day. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Should have spat on him. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to like Golden Age. Just don't tell me it's the best. This is good. It's, Golden Age is fucking great. Anyway, it reminded I was reminded of that because I'm seeing signs for Renaissance everywhere mm. renaissance fair everywhere they should take one of those castles in france because you guys have real castles make that renaissance fair place that would be cool yeah i mean i even the t- term renaissance fair is kind of odd because it is like they're not even portraying the renaissance they're portraying more like the middle ages right yeah so it's, it's not mm-hmm. accurate Correct. it's hard to say middle age fair though <laughs> I mean, yeah. what are you, what is even the point? Like, is people just role playing as, like, hey, I'm selling herbs. Want to buy some herbs or something like that? I don't it's know. It's just a big cosplay thing, basically. Yeah. They're just cosplaying. We do have people who do, who do cosplay. They call it, uh, 
you know, they call it grandeur nature, basically. So it's like, you know, a real size or full size RPG where people are dressed up as like wizards and. Oh, that's LARPing knights. here. Yeah. 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 Pretty, pretty much. Yeah. It's the equivalent of LARPing. Yeah. And so we have that kind of stuff, but it's also not super. I mean, I'm, I'm not very familiar with that, but I don't think it's very common. Used to be, there are probably more of them 20 years ago, but like that's only for like the Uber nerds. Yeah, it's just a bunch of food, is gr- food that you would not normally eat, like a, like a real turkey leg roasted. Here you go. This is what everybody ate in the Renaissance times: a turkey mm. leg. Yeah, they didn't have turkeys, I think, but uh, <laughs> you know, whatever. This is before <laughs> turkeys were. Where, where were turkeys? Isn't I, I actually don't know where turkeys originated from. I have to admit, but no, I'm curious. Um, I want maybe it was North America. I don't know. I, I didn't. I always thought turkeys were just everywhere. It might. Subsit <laughs> here in Africa. Find a turkey. Why not? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. All right. It's not turkey fest anyway. They just serve turkey. It is. It is native <laughs> to North America. So it. Yeah, it didn't mm. exist in Europe. That explains the Ben Franklin thing, right? It was almost our national bird. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Ben Franklin wanted. The turkey, not the eagle, to be the national the noble bird. Turkey. Uh, he was right. It was more fitting of the American spirit. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. a lot. <laughs> you know, a bird with balls on its son's face, yeah. Yep. <laughs> that is what the turkey is most known for. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a kind of obese and very flamboyant bird with yep. balls on its face. I, you know, to me, I, you know, as a European, it really represents America. <laughs> <laughs> fat, too fat to fly as well. Uh, yeah, you yeah, know. true. And I mean, I'm saying that as a guy whose uh, national bird is uh, the rooster, you know, so mm. arrogant and aggressive despite not being very, you know, uh, strong. So it's it's really a, a good mm. representation of us as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, news, berserk news, not Renaissance Fair news, not Turkey news, berserk news. Uh, we're in September now. And there is no date for the next exhibition, uh, but we're about two years away from when this started. So we had all talked about, eh, it, it makes sense if they just relaunched it in Tokyo again, which is where it started two years ago. Uh, and Azil, you said that Kurosaki had mentioned that something might be happening later this month, some announcement uh, in Japan, which might, might end up being that, you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, he said there would be some news, uh, I believe, this week. And it's probably going to be like, it's going to be something that ties up with the release of the new volume. And yeah, my guess is it might likely be uh, a new exhibition, a new new Mm -hmm. leg of the exhibition, basically. That'd be cool. Uh, Yeah, to mention that September September 29th is the release of volume 42, which is, of course, the first full volume by the new team. So that's the, you know, the ending point for real berserk, the starting point for new berserk, uh, for volume 42. And the other update is that Kurosaki said on Twitter or X that, uh, episode 374 is completed and waiting for publication. So it's up to young animal to release that. Uh, and that's it. So just, we're kind of, I mean, some people are waiting on that. Oh, goody. That's it for me. Any other news? Anything you guys want to talk about before we get into the full uh, reread of Volume 31? I'm ready. Mm, no, I don't think so. Okay. All right. So, Volume 31. Um, this is... that We've been leading up to the action kind of kicking off in Vertanis. It really started at the end of Volume 30. But to me, this is like... 
this is the kickoff for the main event. This is the thing that makes Vertanis memorable to me is this lead up to and culmination of the fight with Daiba. Uh, not only because it's like a big spectacle that showcases some new uses of magic and, you know, all the familiars we see, well, they, the big familiar we see rather, uh, but the teamwork. Um, and there's some really amazing just fight sequences and, and character dynamics within uh, the teamwork. Like, there's this moment towards the end of the Daiba fight. It's like pushing everyone to their limits, you know, kind of an all or nothing final attack. It's a big gamble they make to take down Daiba and his familiar. Um, it's one of the best moments uh, fighting wise in the series. I think I feel like it's something that he built up to over a long period of time. And it, it really has this big moment where it all coalesces. Uh, and that's the, towards the end of this volume here. Uh, we won't get to that in this particular podcast, but it's the end of the Daiba fight. Anyway, um, that's only and then the last few episodes of this section of the volume is the introduction of Daiba. Uh, the first half of this volume also covers a lot of, you know, Guts pushing his own limits and, and the consequences of that for the team, which is effectively that Shirke gets sidelined to kind of rein in Guts as he uses the armor. And it results in a different look for Guts, which is a good segue for the cover, uh, which is this. Uh, new look for when Guts has, I don't know, we don't have a proper term for it. The armor is activated, but he is in control, right? That's a new kind of mode. Yeah. Uh, and it culminates in this look, which looks like a superhero mask almost. Hmm. Like the the mask itself is on, but it's not as elongated as when it's in full, you know, berserk mode. Yeah, the lower part is missing. Right. And uh, you can see Guts' eye on the cover and his teeth. So, yeah, it immediately strikes you as a different look for him. Um, I remember at the time, and, you know, you can see it now. I think Griff had said, it looks like Batman. <laughs> he made a lot of Batman jokes in the threads around it. And, and yeah, it, 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 you can see it because the ears, right? Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the color. And the, the fact the lower part of the face shows, yeah, definitely reminiscent. Although... Yeah. I don't think it was uh, like a conscious inspiration, but uh, at the end result does does uh, remind us of it. Mm. Sure. It must have been uh, trippy for people just reading the volumes to see that for the first time, because I, I took it for granted because I just read episodically. But uh, yeah, I wonder how people <laughs> interpreted that when they first saw that. Not episodically, but with the full volume? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, for us, it was... We had like a month between each release at this time, a couple months. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time on the threads talking about what this meant or didn't mean. Um, is it new? Is it the same? Is there any power dynamic difference in this new Guts? I, I don't think so. I think it's like a visual way to show that Guts, is in Guts has found a way to strike the balance of using the armor while not completely giving into it, right? And not... And, and Mira wanted to culminate that with a new look. Yeah, we I mean, it's, a, it's basically halfway between each, you know, halfway between mm -hmm. the armor fully activated and him not in control and also just him, you know, knowing what to do. So with Shuke's help, he's able to to look like that. And um, as far as the cover goes, the cover illustration, it's not one of my favorites. I think it's uh, it's good for what it is. Uh, and of course, there's always like something Mira talked about, but the fact, you know, a cover, you've got to see the main character. It's got to be recognizable. It's got to, it's, you know, it's very, you know, constrained. So it fits the bill for that. But uh, I'm a much bigger fan of the insert posters for this volume, actually. Yeah, that's how it goes. We're kind of at a section of the series where 
this the, the volume covers aren't doing it for me, but the posters definitely do. That's happened the past couple now, and it will still happen up until 34 anyway. I believe we're treated to two oil paintings inside with the little mm-hmm. posters. Yep. Yeah, oil yeah. slash acrylic. They look really yeah. good. Yeah, so poster A is of Daiba. Um, he looks very wizened, like a wizened wizard. <laughs> yeah. I love that and they're, decrepit old face. Yeah, and his teeth were in particular. I was like, man, fix you could really you guys couldn't fix his teeth or something, <laughs> get some kind of prosthetics on there. Okay. But uh there are I noticed there are four different textures, uh, all with looks like the same brush. Uh just like the turban has its own texture, the skin, the beard, and the hair, they all look so different, you know. Um even though it's the same canvas, you know, it's not a digital work, but was able to get that much texture difference. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the eyes in particular are most striking here uh, because they are f- almost full black. You know, very little, um, what do you call that? Whites of the eyes, whatever yeah. the word is for that. Uh, which I think is supposed to make you sense, right? Just at a look that he's not, not just a normal dude, uh, that there's something supernatural happening with him. It could just be that that's what old people's eyes looked like. I don't know. But I think it makes you think, huh, hmm. This seems yeah. like a magic user. I mean, some it, kind of s- it's kind of the same with Shiruke where she's got, you know, some sort of reverse pupil, you know, the way it's, uh, it's mm-hmm. drawn. And yeah, for him, basically, even in the, you know, in the manga itself, in black and white, he's got basically black eyes. So I think it's uh, due to his age and also his practice of magic. It's, it's fucked up his eyes, basically, or at least their looks. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk a lot about Daiba in this episode. You know, I think he's fucking great. I love that he is um, kind of like into this fight. You know, whenever he initiates the fight, he's more curious and interested than he is like an outright villain. He's very confident, so I think, too, which yeah. is... Which I like because, you know, it's also more pleasant when he gets his ass kicked. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's calling them youngins throughout the whole time, making like old people jokes about how, you know, they're young and he's old and he has more experience, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a lot of that works pretty well. Yeah. Um, and poster B is uh, this really iconic thing with Shirke and Guts that happens in this volume. Yeah. Um, it's got like an image of contrast is what I like about it. The guts is rough and dark and Shirke is, you know, smooth and light. So it's visually works really well. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really great. Uh, one of my favorites. I absolutely love it. And like you said, uh, you know, darkness, you know, paired with Shirke as a body of light. It's just mwah, perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is one yeah, of the po- uh, posters that I actually went to Kinko's. Uh, and printed out a high quality big poster of and put it on my wall years and years ago. And I remember my mom seeing it and she said, this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think Who's it's weird now, you know, mom. <laughs> this has happened to me in a number of different series where I'll see some, you know, later artwork or later images of it. And just seeing the picture makes you want to know more. Yeah. Like you want to know, what is happening here? Who are these people? And what's this relationship? What is this? What is what is actually happening in this image? But it's really cool that it evokes. It has like a story to it in an in medium res story. Yeah. Um, but you don't know what it is until you're obviously reading. So anyway, my point is like it's very evocative of a feeling or a moment, and you want to know more. I think. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Why has that girl got an umbilical cord coming out of her head? Yeah, what's going on with that? <laughs> Why is she a ghost? <laughs> ghost girl. Yeah. There was actually, uh, I did reread the threads, uh, the, the discussion threads about these episodes ahead of the podcast. So what people were thinking and saying in the time of their release. And one of the most common takeaways or, or thoughts was that Shirke would be trapped. That this was it. That oh. she's now permanently residing in Guts, mm. uh, you know, armor. Um, I'm not saying it was universal, but it was one of the more recurring, like, you know, speculations was, well, that's it. Now she lives in the armor and that's how they're going to resolve Guts' armor problem, you know, through By the sacrificing her character. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. She just built in. It's like an AI in there now. Yeah. It's like oh my God. Jarvis for no. Iron Man. <laughs> nice. It's a living armor. Great. Guess she doesn't need <laughs> her cares? body anymore. Toss yeah. it in the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are they going to do? I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do double duty for uh, baby care now. You got Casca and Shirke take care of now. Yeah, that would have been wild. <laughs> Two incapacitated characters, basically. Mm-hmm. The other recurring thing was what to make of this new look for Guts and, and what it signifies. Um, is there a power level differential happening? You know, is he is he stronger now? Is it normal Guts? Mm-hmm. How much more can he bench now that he has the mask on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, need, we need stats. We need to yeah, measure yeah, yeah. stuff like in Rocky Four. you know. He punches but, a bag and there's the numbers go up. Yeah. And I think he's <laughs> getting those injections from the... Uh, the Russian dude. Um, I, I think it's normal to wonder about that when this is introduced. But as things play out, I do think it's just a, it's a visual cue that Guts is in control of the armor, period. And I don't yeah. think it, it's meant to tell you more than that. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that, go ahead. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, if we're talking about what we know now, yeah, obviously it just means, yeah, Guts is in control. He's sane, basically. He can use the mm-hmm. armor while being sane because Shiruke is basically manually preventing the liquid from covering his vision and altering his perception. Mm-hmm. It's like he can fight with a little more ferocity than when the armor's not quote-unquote activated, I guess. I think he's got, like, he, he can enjoy the power of the armor, so right. more strength... Faster, that kind of stuff. Of of course, with the let's say side effect of harming his body as he fights because he he doesn't have restraint, but he he's got the benefits basically without the. I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, when the the helmet doesn't go and lock on. I guess when his head is out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does the uh, armor? Does he benefit from the armor then? Like when he's in. There's a pain dulling effect. We know even when the helmet's not on, yeah. we do know that he basically wears the armor on the beach in particular because he's still recovering from his wounds. Yeah. So we know that's there, but I know, I totally know what you're getting at gobs, which is, is there any difference between guts with his mask on like it is on the cover versus just having normal, normal head guts? Yeah. Right. I don't know that it's ever explicitly addressed, but by deduction, what happens here is this guts loses control. And the armor does its thing. Shirke jumps in to help Guts navigate what it's like, perception-wise, to use the armor. She brings him back to his senses. But the armor is still in on mode, right? Yeah. You get it? And so because of that, Guts can, like, steer it and and be more conscious or aware of his actions. Yeah. But it's still on. Got it. Yeah, it's essentially, uh, you know, Shirke is kind of shunting it. It's, uh, It's almost like she's cheating. 
she's right. He's he's using the armor and it's fully powered, but she's keeping him aware by being in, inside of it, and that's that's how it's working. So it's the same as when the armor is fully on, except he's got control of himself instead of uh, acting purely on instinct and and rage and and he's mm-hmm. uh, feeling of enmity towards whoever is in front of him. So that's yeah. that's the main difference. Whereas when it's not activated, when he's just wearing it. It's got an effect, all, all sorts of effect on his nerves, you know, dulling the pain, you know, that kind of stuff. And of course, always ready to, to spring every time he's, uh, how to say, jolted by something or anything that kind of stimulates him. Uh, but yeah, he doesn't have like enhanced strength when it's not active. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I get it. Uh, so the insert picture is of <laughs> it's like a sea of Daka next to the burning ships in the sea. What I like most about this is like they're silhouetted by the light of the burning ships. And so the foreground stuff, the foreground elements are all dark on the our side of it. Mm. And it makes it really accentuates their horns. Like that's all you see here is a sea of horns and profile faces. So yeah. And their Very teeth. Cool. I, I don't know why, but I was drawn to their teeth a lot in this one mm-hmm. too. Yeah. I think it underlines the theme of the volume, which is Britain is being invaded by monsters and monstrous forces generally. Mm. So it's a pretty good choice for for the inset, you know, all in all. There are a lot of them in this one. Yeah. Yeah, and they keep coming too. Like there's a couple shots in this first episode which I'll cover where there's already they're already everywhere. And then we see more land. And it's like, huh, this is a growing problem. It's not even it's still playing out, you know, as they arrive here. Right. Yeah. So I will take the first episode, which is uh, titled Blazing Bay. Uh, the group makes their way to Roderick's ship, but they are sandwiched between hordes of Daka as they stand in an alleyway, and more are coming from ships. Guts decides to take them on, but Shirke warns him of the dangers and that he shouldn't risk himself so lightly. But she can assist. Even though this is a human city, she says there's no place where there are no spirits. And she finds one, but it's a dangerous astral entity that's engulfed in flames. As Shirke attempts to make contact, Guts buys her time by drawing the Dragon Slayer and stepping out into the Sea of Daka. Shirke finds a kaleidoscopic view of a burning city with fiery souls, and she's nearly engulfed by it, but finds her footing, remembering her failure at Enoch, and she's determined to make contact with this new entity. As we see the wheel of flame ahead, the episode ends. So there's a couple two-page shots here that are just fantastic. One is the one we just discussed, which is this two-page, it ends up being a two-page spread of the Daka. And as I said before, I think what works about it is there's this intense light source of the flames on the ships in the background, and that plays out over the heads of the Daka in profile, and it makes the, it really accentuates their monstrous shapes, and it just looks really angular and weird. Um, yeah. It's the kind of shot, you know, it reminds me of when we were going through the exhibition, and there's this shot, I think it's volume five, there's a battlefield sequence. And most of it is like all like charcoal black, but you're seeing the highlights of the armor as horses like run into other horses in the in the distance, right? It's a very thoughtful, artistic shot that makes you have a, more of a feeling than a detailed look. And that's what this is to me. This is like this evokes the feeling of monsters surrounded by flames and yeah. what that looks like. So it's a very, very thoughtful depiction of the Daka. Mm. It's uh it's in Doldrace in volume seven, I think. The one you Thank you. Volume at. seven. Yeah. yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Anyway, I thought it was one of the random ones. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's true. Uh, I mean, it's true. The, the, the backlighting, basically, and the yeah. silhouetting is what makes it. And 
that's exactly, you know, it's funny you're talking about the exhibition because this is typically the kind of thing where I'm like, this should have been like the exhibition yep. because it's such a great two-page spread. They look great. I mean, super page. And if I can add something is the one uh, afterwards, uh, just after that, where you see the ship coming and then uh, you see the bridge being lowered and the DACA stepping out. You know, the attention to detail on every little bit. Yeah, little great. spikes on the bridge. Yeah, it's so great, man. Yeah, I definitely have never considered how that would work, but the fact that there are spikes makes sense. It makes a little chunk chunk into the planks. Yeah, and they cross over. Pretty cool. Mm. Yeah. Um, what else? Gut's initial plan um, to activate the armor and then have Shirke bring him back to his senses. It's kind of amusing that Gus just says it like so casually, <laughs> like "Yeah, yeah, just you'll wake me up. Don't worry about it. You know, it's just no big deal." He kind of shows his. Throughout the series, up until Volume Forty One, he's been very not unconcerned, or how to say, he's taken it very lightly, mm-hmm. and and everybody tells him not to, from the Skull Knight to Shirke to everybody else, and he's always like, yeah, sure, yeah, whatever. And uh, I mean, we didn't get to see really what Mirad planned with it, him having some kind of reckoning uh, because of that. But yeah, it's it's interesting that in almost every occasion. Every occurrence, he's like that. He's just, eh, sure, we'll, we'll figure it out, whatever. Yeah, right up until when Gedflin says the same thing, basically. Yeah. Uh, in a different way, towards the in the very end of Miura's run with the series. Yep. But uh, Shirke is quite emotional here. You know, she's tearing up, saying that she shouldn't. This is her own body at stake. You can't just, you know, throw that away, basically. And Guts is surprised by it, you know. It's probably because no one's ever told him to, to hold back. You know, that's kind of his whole thing, is throw everything into each fight. Yeah, uh, and he's like, "Huh? I, I guess I never thought about that before." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, Casca did did time That's similar true. stuff, but yeah, it's pretty much other than that. Pretty much everybody's like, "Yeah, sure, do whatever you want." I I, I like in that scene. There's that little panel of them being silhouetted yeah. uh, in the alleys that I really like. I think it's really great. It's a small panel, but uh, just love it. Yep. Guts says basically, yeah, 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 you'll bring him back to my senses. It kind of violates what he'd said on the beach to Skull Knight that, you know, thanks for the warning, Guts says, but that's not going to happen. I'll never lose myself that way again. Next time I'll show you I can handle this thing with temperance, was what he told Skull Knight back on the beach. Now, I don't know that that was in Guts' head at this moment. It's more like this is a decision being made on the battlefield. You know, there's very few options. And instead of using the best tool, he has to fight on the edge of the blade as usual, right? Dancing around the danger of the enemies and himself, which is what makes this whole sequence cool from here through the end of this volume is that is the only option for the increasing danger of monsters they're going to face is he has to do this thing that he knows is dangerous uh, and he has to rely on Shirke to find a way to make that temperance thing work. Um, As he steps out into the Sea of Daka, Shirke goes deeper into the astral world and she finds this beautiful, crazy looking picture of, it looks like echoes of Vertanus. Like you're seeing, it's not even just Vertanus. It's, it looks like echoes of lots of different places, right? That are on fire. Um, and it makes you, and it, she talks about this as well as she says, there's something particular about this. You know, she says, it makes sense. This is here. I don't have her exact wording in front of me, but the wheel of flame, which is, we don't know the name of this thing yet. Uh, it's introduced in the next episode when it finally kind of emerges. She calls it a dangerous power. Um, it's an astral entity associated with all this fire that Shirke sees. And I think it's like, I think it's like a karmic thing that follows around battlefields. Is, is She kind of says something about that. 
These are not flames of nature. They were set by human hands to burn away enemies, the city, the people. And she says hellfire, which is, you know, the term that we've heard a couple different times. Uh, Flora mentions it as well. Uh, yeah, I do think this is something that basically feeds off of the violence and destruction of battlefields. Now, what's really interesting about the Wheel of Flame to me is it's sort of crossover between the astral world and the human world in a way that I don't know that we've seen happen before. There's some kind of symbiosis between the physical, what happens in the physical battlefields mm. and the echoes of that in the astral world, an entity that, you know, siphons off power from that kind of thing, right? Yeah, um, I, think it's, I think it's meant to be uh, when humans do something, even though they do it like in the physical world, but they basically, they also exist on the astral plane. They have mm-hmm. spirits and so on. And so that kind of repercussions, basically. And I think the idea of war and, you know, a massive loss of life and massive destruction, that kind of repercussion on the astral level. And like you said... There's kind of a karmic aspect to it. The thing, so with the word they use, which is goka, uh, it translates, if you check the dictionary, it translates as hellfire. It can also be raging fire. You can use it mm-hmm. for like, a, a, let's say there's a huge forest fire in Canada. You, can, you could use it for that, basically. It can also mean in Buddhism, uh, a kind of fire of retribution that would consume uh, someone who did something bad. So for example, Let's say you, you beat up your pet or your child and the next day you have a car accident. You could use that kind of word to describe it. it, you know. So, and basically the first kanji of the word is a kanji uh, that means karma in Japanese. Mm-hmm. So there's that aspect to it. And then I'll talk about it in my, my episode, but there's, there's a whole lot of imagery about it. Like the fact it's a wheel. You know, like the wheel of karma. Yeah. Uh, the terms it uses to talk about the crimson tracks. Uh, it will bury the dakander. You know, that, that, that word for crimson, it's used for one of the hells in Buddhism. So there's a lot of, uh, it's not, it's not, what says straightforwardly Buddhistic, much like there's nothing straightforwardly Catholic in Berserk, but it feels inspired or adjacent to it in a way. Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't have more to say other than the way this episode ends, which is that what determines Shirke to, you know, make this work is she remembers back this scene they had in the bar. Uh, and she's talking about how guts regarded her, uh, you know, is part of them now as like a family. Yeah. And so she'll protect it too. Just before we, we switch on, uh, I, I do like, there's a couple of other two-page spreads I think are really beautiful, in addition to the one you mentioned. I really like the one where Guts is coming out of the alley, and you see there's like 100 Daka waiting for him, basically. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that really sets up the scale of what he's against. And uh, and then when you see him slashing them, uh, you know, with that kind of layered uh, paneling, I also think, while well, Isidro and Serpico are fending them off on their, on their own side, I think that's also pretty... Pretty cool, very well done, very dynamic. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, everyone's doing something except for Magnifico, who's just kind of reeling back. I do like that he's at least there being shown to be cowering. Yeah. Just to check that box. He's an audience insert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you were there, yeah. you'd be acting like I this. Mean, how many, yeah, how many readers would identify with uh, Magnifico is a, is a good question. I definitely can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's uh, it for me. I pass the mic over to, is it Azil? Yeah, it's me. All right, so next episode is Blaze Rod.
Blazer Lodo. So uh, the episode opens with Isidro and Serpico struggling to contain the Dakans yelling, uh, helped in part by their frenzy and lack of coordination. Meanwhile, Guts has amassed a pile of corpses and is catching his breath. Adaka jumps from a roof to get him by surprise, but gets impaled instead. With his face covered in blood, Guts struggles to raise the pull of the armor, struggles not to let the Beast of Darkness take control. As the group gets overwhelmed in the alley and dozens of Daka zero in on Guts, a burst of heat erupts from his back. Shuriki has summoned a massive blazing wheel that we precedently saw, one that related the fire that scorches the battlefield. She motions to a nearby water wheel with a staff and it erupts in flames, breaks from its support and starts spinning crazily and rolling over the throngs of enemies. Shiruka is in the wake, however, still in a trance. Isidro tries to grab her, but she's too hot to the touch, and in the end it's Guts who grabs the two of them and jumps to safety in the alley, right as the wheel passes by them and then lands in the harbor. Nothing but charred corpses are left in its wake, and as Shiruki opens her eyes, she's reassured that everyone's safe and her plan worked great. So, um, there's a bunch of things to say about this one, starting with the title. So the kanji in the title means uh, blazing or flaming wheel. So it's either wheel, a ring, a circle, you get the idea, but basically it means a blazing wheel. But the katakana specifically means blaze rod like in a fishing rod. So we never quite settled on the definitive interpretation for this, and my best guess remains to these days that it probably refers both to the wheel and to the fact Shiruke gets it going with her staff. Honestly, I'm kind of unsatisfied with it, but that's the best I got, and I'm not sure we're going to find a, a better explanation for it. What if... It's a mistake, and it meant nah, to be it doesn't mean, road. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I know that's also an old thing, but I don't think. First, it could be a mistake because road is not written the same way, but it was not corrected in the volume, mm-hmm. and I don't think, like I, w- I don't get the point of writing road in katakana. It's not something like Japanese people can write rod, like a fishing rod. If you type rod. You see fishing rods in you know in Google in Japanese, but road, they don't use that word. So they they tend to use kanji. It's my point. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sh- I'm not sure. I don't I don't get it basically. And also, yeah, I don't know. This is I'm, by the way. This is why I gave this episode to you. This whole debacle. <laughs> yeah, I've, just to be clear to the listeners, we had the same conversation back then, and road. Like, is it a misspelling and does it mean road? That's also one of the guesses we had at the time. And that's also another thing I reconsidered this time. And I'm still of the opinion that probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some younger listeners might be like, hey, maybe it's a reference to Blaze Rod in uh, Minecraft. But <laughs> this came out like six or seven years before the Blaze Rod was introduced in Minecraft. So that's okay. not it either. But nice try, young listener. <laughs> <laughs> Hypothetical young listener might not exist. Yeah, uh, yeah, young listener who's listening to this twenty years from now and is forty years old and I'm dead. But uh, <laughs> yeah, now um, so yeah, it's not. I, I don't have an explanation for it. I do think it's meant to refer to her stuff and not the road. I'm fine with that. But honestly, yeah, and I mean, if, if, even if it's a, if, even if it means like blazing road, like why not? I mean, I don't, I don't really care. It doesn't even matter because. We know what the meaning is supposed to be. It's like the blazing wheel. But yeah, yeah, it's just a strange choice. One of these things where 
we don't have a there's a few of them so that's why it's worth mentioning we don't have an explanation for it yeah anyway other than that uh another great two-page spread of the daka hecatomb uh gets us performed and i'm using the literal meaning because it's like he's killed a hundred hundred of them have been sacrificed Anyway, um, I like that he's being shown uh, to be out of breath because I think that shows us first that, of course, his condition is still not perfectly recovered, but also that even with the armor, even if it's such a thing, someone like him can't easily dispatch like hundreds of enemies without breaking a sweat, basically, because God is super powerful. He can kill like a hundred men and so on. But still, if he's faced with like a thousand Daka, he's not going to be able to kill a thousand Daka and be like, yeah, no problem. So I think that serves to ground things, and, and I like that very much. And I was, I don't know, I saw something that came up to me when I was rereading it. Um, it's a lot of DACA. I mean, it's, yeah. he, he wiped out, it must, like you said, it must have been a hundred right there. Yeah, it's like he killed a hundred of them, yeah. So, I, yeah, I do like, um, I do like that. Uh, I also like the... Um, the panel where he's struggling as Yamo, I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's drawn very, with like a thick brush. So it makes it look very rough and very intense. And it's a great effect in my opinion. I really love it very much. Uh, I also appreciated that Isidro comments on Ishiroke's magic being powerful, but taking uh, too long to get going, which comes up again later in the series, including in episode 363, uh, where he's trying to, be too fast for her, but eventually fails. Uh, also, funny thing is that Magnifico already regrets coming along. <laughs> They're not even on the seahorse yet, and he's already regretting it. So that was pretty funny to me. <laughs> like, it's it, honestly, it's like you already know it's telegraphed that it's going to end up the way it, it, it goes, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, also, love that shot of uh, Shiruke stepping. And, and steam radiating away from a foot. It's like a small panel and it's a small thing, but it emphasizes the power she invested with. And it, to me, it's not unlike what Mira does for Guts and to show that like, you know, something big is coming and then we get the reveal of her with the will. And to me, that's what a magic user ought to be like. Not throwing puny, you know, fire projectiles or whatever, but bringing the big guns and bringing Armageddon basically. So I think that was very cool. And of course, the fact she's a little girl makes it, it's, it's like a nice uh, contrast to it. Uh, then the wheel itself, of course, we, we'd already seen it, but uh, I, I'm curious to hear what Gobs and Greta have to say about this. But it's really got, uh, it's a simple, very simple design. But I think the fact it's multi-layered and spinning like that uh, ends up looking very great. Uh, and of course, the star of the show is that it annihilates the Daka, leaving like that fiery road of death. So it's short, but I love that that part too. Yeah, I think the first thing that stood out to me when I first read this episode was how the the spinning wheel of fire kind of transposed itself into Shirky's eyes, which I wasn't expecting at the time, and it was just such a such a strong image that it really stayed with me. Yeah. Um, Another thing that that really stood out to me in this episode was the DACA reactions. Like, we don't often see, like, the DACA kind of reacting to things, but I really liked how they reacted to, uh, first, the, the steam or the, the hot air kind of pushing in through the alleyway from behind uh, Serpico and Roderick, and they're, they're about to come at them. And then they're just like, whoa! <laughs> 
What's going on? I didn't sign up for this. And then finally, when the wheel is about to hit them, they're like, uh oh. And, you, you know, it's we've talked about this before. You can't help but feel sad for the DACA sometimes, but that part was funny. So, sorry, fellas. Yeah. <laughs> even, even like, almost brainless monsters like them can know when they're going to die and some things. In a way, they're almost like animals to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's the same with trolls, you know. Trolls, trolls are monsters. They're horrible. They kill, rape, and eat corpses and so on. But in a way, they're like just wild dogs. It's just stupid and hungry beasts that just eat everything. And, and the Dakas, they feel a bit of the same. And, and it's that big panels, that big two-page two spread, some of them almost look like dogs to me. So... It's uh yeah it's kind of it's kind of funny uh as it was depicted I agree. But they're dogs wearing like soldiers uniforms outfitted with like a cute little vest. Yeah. I I really love the like the the violent destruction and the the flames blasting these things away and there's this one panel where it's guts and and the company just kind of looking on in awe just like holy shit. And in the middle of them, Shirke is just like twirling around, and it's the funniest yeah. thing ever. And <laughs> it's like it's, she's the source of all this. Yeah, but she yeah. Looks so silly. It's it's a great um, juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That's yeah, I agree. Her little twirling, like she keeps twirling and twirling because it's a power of the wheel. Uh, yeah, that's pretty. That's that's pretty cute when you compare it to the absolute destruction she brings. And it's funny because. Uh, I think on pre- previous episode, this was a small comment with like, oh, not another flood where we're going to get the thing. And then this time it's even more like horrifying in a way where it's just pure destruction uh, with, yeah. a, with that fire. So, yeah, it's great. There's also another little panel where Isidro and Shirke's silhouettes are standing next to each other. And I, I think you and I kind of talked about this before as about like how... I don't know. For some reason, I, I, I imagine that Isidro and Shirke were being set up to be like a couple when they got older or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I really like that little pa- the, that little panel where Isidro's like, shit, shit, you're going to snap out of it. And yeah, I, I agree. And uh, I also like that's also was part of my notes is basically... He tries to bring her to safety, but she's like too hot to the touch, so he can't. And he like he makes even a sound like Whoa! and and <laughs> you you see Puck as Bruce Lee because it's like the same kind of sounds he used to make. Ha-cha! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, so it's exactly the sound Isidro makes, basically. So, <laughs> um, and uh, and yeah, and so while he's basically yelling at his. Like he's yelling at the elementals on his daggers because they are not loyal to him, which is also pretty funny. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and then it. we see the little silhouette, and then Gus grabs the two of them and jumps to safety. And yeah, I've always found it that small panel uh, of them to be very meaningful. And of course, they're set up like right from the get go as rivals. And Isidro's got a problem with her because she's smart and she also acts like a smartass. She's like. <laughs> Lisa Simpson. Yeah. Yeah, the teacher's pet. Uh, Oh, I know this better than you. And he's rude and brash and overconfident. And so that's also rubs her the wrong way. Uh, And and yet, he he definitely recognizes her skills begrudgingly. And while he's not... 
he obviously he's not guts. Uh, he's got his own skill, and we see that with the pirates when he comes to Saver, and we see that a number of times. And to me, that always felt like there was a a way, a path forward for them to become more, basically. And I don't know if it would have been realized because it's a matter of choices. It also comes with the moment. It's probably something Mira might have decided to go with or not. One of the things being that it's kind of already who Guts and Casca got together. You know, they had that, what to say, right. kind of contentious relationship, but they ended up together anyway. So if it's exactly the same, you kind of, you know, you would feel maybe a bit repetitive. And at the same time, it kind of felt natural to me. Like the way they're set up to be, it's like the characters take their own life, you know? And at some point you're like, hmm, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be cool and wouldn't it make sense if eventually they're like, well, Isidro takes a risk to save her or something and one thing leads to another and so on. And I even felt like with Isma, that set up an interesting uh, love triangle between them. Yeah. Where Isidro might feel like Isma shows her naked body all the time because she's kind of a country girl. And so, you know, he's staring at the boobies and so on. But yet, <laughs> e- even so, even still, I feel like if Shuriken were to tell him, well, I'm not, I haven't got what she's got. And he would be like, yeah, but you're like, you're the best girl ever. Aww. The most powerful, the coolest and so on. So that's kind of, I'm just basically blabbering fan fiction here. But <laughs> yeah, I always felt like that was an interesting path for them. And it's very that, sweet. Yeah. yeah, and that little scene where he tries to grab her and that little silhouetted panel, very dear to my heart. So, yeah, mm-hmm. end of the parenthesis. <laughs> I think it's the kind of thing where you can, I don't think it's intentional, but it's the kind of pairing by the silhouette that just makes you think, like, oh, these two together, huh? You know, yeah. right. that's how really all it is in, in the sequence of this part of the story. But, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's a cute little uh, silhouette. Speaking of cute moments, the very end of this episode also warms my heart very much with the little, oh, yeah. the little, uh, kind of the, the huddle around little Shirky's body and her smiling at the very end. It's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, where she's like, is everyone okay? And, you know, he's like, you did a good job. Mm hmm. Oh. Yeah, everyone's checking in on her too. Yeah, and he, <laughs> Isidro's face is funny. Yeah, he's like. <laughs> <laughs> There's something that happens in the last episode. I, I forgot to mention because it it relates to what happens in this episode. Is that when Shirke is scanning the horizon for something that she can tap into, she sees the the water wheel kind of just by itself. And then she realizes there's something here that's it's here because it's in this particular place. And then when she sees the blaze wheel, it's like it embodies that wheel. And it's also what she chooses to inhabit the wheel, yeah. the, the vintage. So it kind of works in that way. It's like it's a, it's an appropriate vessel for the flame wheel that just happens to work perfectly in terms of strategy, that it's a narrow path that they have to blaze through, which is a very resourceful application of it, I thought as well. There's nowhere for the docker to run, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, like you said, she she definitely, because she sees that wheel on fire, mm-hmm. then she realizes there's one thing here, that, that fiery wheel that embodies the fire of the battlefield and so on, that she can tap into. And when she gets to uh, Hellfilm and, and she sees uh, all the magicians and so on, and she demonstrates that she can basically... Like what she's learned on the field, you know, casting spells faster, summoning stuff and so on. And I think that's a good example of that kind of application where she's not just 
reading a book at home and setting things up for three hours. She's got to act fast, react fast, think fast. And so I think that's a great showcase of her abilities uh, as a witch. Mm -hmm. One other visual interesting thing that happens is when Guts is about to lose himself after this DACA blood is all over him and he's winded and losing it. You know, we see the beast kind of coming up his back as it did before on the beach, I think. Uh, but what's interesting here is that Farnese sees it. Yeah. You know, it's like a physical manifestation, not just in Gut's head. So that was interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, the question is does she just see the helmet coming up or right. does she also see like that in picture of the, of the beast itself? And that's, that's the question. But yeah, she does see the physical, uh, the physical phenomenon of that, at least the helmet rising up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and also, you've already mentioned it, but I like the salamanders kind of leave um, Asidra because they found a better source, you know, around Farnese, sorry, around Shirke swimming around her like that. Well, that was funny. <laughs> yeah, little technical little thing about how the elementals work. Yeah, and the fact, basically, like his dagger is one thing, but when you've got a higher level spiritual entity, yeah, that is. It's also the same thing that happens with the Kundalini. Basically, that when it's mm-hmm. there, it's got control of the water. And if if she had been in a place where there was a, you know, something like the Lady of the Death, she could have probably, I mean, even surely taken over from the Kundalini like she did from the Kalpi. And so the Kundalini would have been deprived of its power. But because it was in Britannis, there was no such elemental there, and that's why they also struggling as a Kundalini. I also think that, like, what's really interesting here is the blaze wheel. It just looks so fucking foreign, like alien-like, kind of hovering over the battlefield like that whenever it's announcing itself. It just looks so strange if you were seeing that in real life, you know, because the Lady of the Depths has, like, water if it's a form of a lady. Like, sure, this is a very abstract thing, uh, an eyeball, a floating eyeball that's on swirling fire. It's just so bizarre. Yeah, well, and uh, what we, I mean, this is something Pula actually explained at the time, but that whole relation with karma and the fact mm-hmm. the fire of the battlefield, retribution and so on. So that all, it all works in that that kind of context, but it, it, is, a, it is not a natural being, something born of nature and that yeah. could have a personified form. It is, I think it's meant to be that sort of abstract uh, being. Mm-hmm. Anything else for this passed off to Grail? Um, I'm good on my side now. Okay. All right. So the next episode is called Sword Beast. Uh, Shirke is left depleted after summoning the uh, Wheel of Fire. And in a touching moment, Guts offers to pick her up and carry her while the group continues their trek across the harbor. As the need to find a boat among the ruins in the area is reiterated, Shirke and Guts sense a terrible presence nearby. To everyone's horror, another Makara surges up from the water, closely followed by no less than four more of the creatures, making a wall that the group can't easily get past. Isidro very accurately observes how things seem to be going from bad to worse. As Shirke realizes that she's too weak to cast another spell, Guts instructs her to get down. She looks down from her place clinging to Guts's cloak and witnesses the terrible sight of the beast traveling up to take over Guts once again. 
She grabs at the head of the beast, thinking that she won't be able to call him back if he transforms while she's in her current state. The Makara are about to attack, and their time is up. The head of the beast engulfs Guts while her physical, while Shirky continues to cling onto it desperately. In doing so, her body, uh, her astral body is separated from her physical one, and she falls back into Farnese's arms. Now with the armor fully activated, Guts casts off his bags and equipment to leap directly into the Bakara's mouth and uses the Dragon Slayer to burst from the creature's eye in a fountain of gore. The group, uh, uh, the group look on in awe of Guts' sudden ability to kill a Makara near instantly, but are wary of the fact that one wrong move could put them in harm's way as he carves an indiscriminate path of de- destruction. Meanwhile, uh, Farnese tends to Shirky's body, and Ivalera warns the others not to wake her, as she is separated from her, his, her physical body. Her astral body's location is unclear, until we watch as Guts lunges forward again, decimating more Makara as he jumps from creature to creature. He pauses at the mast of a nearby ship, and Shirky's face can be seen in the eye of the armor. Uh, so my notes for this episode... Uh, well, one, it was just a little thing that first came to me, but as I was reading through these episodes in preparation for the podcast, uh, I just kept noticing little puck asides and little, you know, uh, like we were talking about earlier, like the little moment where he turns into Bruce Lee. And I thought that was a really clever way to easily diffuse, uh, some of the tension that's coming up in these scenes, because obviously it gets very tense and very, worrisome because you're thinking what the heck is going to happen to poor guts and is Cherokee going to be able to help him and i just it was a little assurance from mira that things are going to be okay (laughs) (laughs) though i will i should note that in this episode puck is not his little uh chestnut self in a couple of panels which you know i think we're trained as readers to look for that look for the little cute puck and when you don't see that you're like oh shit (laughs) um so that was an interesting little thing that I noticed. Uh, I was also appreciating, obviously, the, these past several episodes have been a lot about Shirke and how, you know, this journey has affected her and how she wants to move forward. So I really liked how this episode showed Guts wanting to recognize Shirke as someone who deserves respect and support after she's wrought just total destruction over this harbor uh, and while I was just thinking that while Isidro is the most outwardly like a young Guts, I think that Guts sees a lot of himself in Shirke, and in that moment where he offers to carry her, it's it almost just felt like it was something that uh, maybe Guts might have wished somebody had done for him when he was younger, and showing him that compassion and understanding, and like an adult who's been there and, and knows what it's like to be a kid who who has such extraordinary power. Obviously not in the same way as Shirke, but he kind of recognizes that. That's an interesting uh, observation. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to imagine Gambino telling Guts, don't push too hard. Yeah, like, unlikely. hey, son, do you, do you need a, pig, a little piggyback ride down the mm-hmm. hill or something like that after a fight? Like, no, not, none of that is happening. So it's, it's yeah. funny just how, you know, it just stood out to me because Isidro is obviously like, a young guts in that way, but Shirke has kind of that deep understanding that he would share with her. So <laughs> that struck, struck me a bit. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I just, I just liked how uh, in the previous episode also, how Shirke 
uh, or uh, an earlier episode talking about Enoch and how she's learning from her mistakes or, or, you know, the issues that she had before. And she's really, I don't know, learning on her feet in a really amazing way. And I just love how each episode there's a moment where she's like, okay, I'm going to make this decision. Like she jumps into the armor and, you know, there's this whole you know, new path that they've discovered as a result of that. So it's kind of a interesting interesting string of events in this episode. So I'm wondering what you guys thought of it. Yeah, sure. Um, what can I say? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'll mention among the uh, funny panels you mentioned, there's a one where Magnifico says, uh, basically he refers to the fact he'll get seasick when they're on the ship. And again, <laughs> same thing I said last time, but he's already basically... <laughs> Letting us see that he's gonna be C6 the whole trip. So foreshadowing. Really, yeah. yeah, I mean that that guy's really uh, not uh, wasn't meant to go on a on a sea journey, and uh, yeah, you can already tell it's gonna be bad for him. It's a real Chekhov's gun moment right here. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, yeah, yeah. It's a uh, that's an interesting MacGuffin for sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, as far as I do like that, it looks like he's in this panel you're mentioning that Magnifico is concerned yeah. about the smell, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Then the smell, you don't, they don't really draw attention to the smell in Berserk that often, but here we know it stinks. Yeah, I mean, oh, he's yeah. one of these guys, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, it stinks. Oh, the food's not good. <laughs> he's a, uh, yeah. What call him uh, in France, we, we would say petite nature. It means basically not CC boy, but, you know, something of that. Something of that nature, but less uh, less offensive. <laughs> so yeah, he's exactly that kind of character. That dainty, I guess. You know, needs to eat with clean plate. Needs to eat in a good environment. Need to sleep in a nice bed. Once again, I can relate. <laughs> I can relate too. Yeah, he is also a little comfort of life. Whereas me, I'm a real guy. I can you're, sleep. You're on a the, rugged fella. <laughs> yeah, I can sleep on the floor. <laughs> well, that's true, actually. Well, I didn't say I could sleep comfortably, but I can sleep on the floor. Oh. Anyway, um, yeah. Now, the, other than that, really nice panels of Macara. I always had, uh, back, back when it was released, I had a problem with the fact, I mean, not really a problem, but I was a bit uh, saddened by the fact that Macaras all come all at once so shortly after they've dealt with the, the Dakar. <laughs> I always felt like that was a little bit, uh, like fast, basically. It's like they just dispatched the Dakar, blam, there's 10 Makara waiting to come out. So I always felt like it would have been nice if we had one more page of buffer to see them walking along the, the harbor a little more, but whatever. Um, and yeah, I think the, when he's using the armor, what's interesting here is that you see the power differential really well. As well as the fact that he's not, or he's recuperated since the bitch, and maybe even learned, you know, uh, how to control the armor more. Where he, like on the bitch, he kills one Makara, uh, but still, and here he just dispatches like a whole bunch of them, and it's like nothing, nothing's going on. So I think that shows both the progression of him as far as using the armor goes, also how his state changes, and of course, the difference between him. Like in being normal, basically, where he can kill a hundred Daka, no problem, but he's out of breath and he's, you know, sweating and he's tired. And with the armor, he's killing like five Makaras and 
doing flips and crazy figures and so on. And it's like, like slicing them in half and uh, it's like, it's no problem. So yeah, I think that's, that's a nice way to show that with some great, of course, great art to, to showcase uh, all of this. Mm. Uh, there's five Makara, I think there's five that when initially appear, mm-hmm. it's possible that there's more. I didn't really count the number that he kills in this in the next episode, but yeah, it looks like five, which is quite a bit of a stakes upgrade. Uh, and it's what we mentioned last time about this whole sequence of the series is that things, the stakes keep getting raised. The danger level keeps increasing all the way up to Diaba and, and, and even beyond Diaba, right? So it's that to me, it's, it's, it's a lot, but it's appropriate with the constant stake raising that's happening. You know, uh, five is a lot. Um, and, but that being said, Guts takes out one in one strike, you know, it goes through the mouth, out the eyeball, eyeball pops. The eyeball is as big as Guts is and it pops, Yeah, which is gross. And Mir uses a special little effect to show the uh, little white (laughs) stuff exploding from the eye. Uh, He does it again. He does it again. He goes goes to the eye of one of them and comes out the other eye. He pierces two eyes. Bloom, bloom, dead. What? Uh, you know, he found a weakness and he's exploiting it, which yeah. is smart. It's fucking gross is what it is. I'm, I'm with Magnifico over there holding my nose. <laughs> you're, a, you're a dainty uh, CC boy. Whatever. I'm so dainty. <laughs> yeah, I can sleep on the floor, too, as long as I have an air mattress. Easy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. That's not really being on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, when we see Shirke inside. So first, but first of all, Shirke is so concerned about trying to stop guts that she ends up riding it her into the armor, which is fascinating. Like, I don't know that you could have predicted such a thing was possible, uh, but yeah, it's a, she gets trapped in there uh, temporarily, you know, and she exploits that. It's like getting, it's like getting in an arcade machine. She's inside the arcade machine, pulling all the dip switches. She can make things happen in there now, which mm. is kind of cool little idea yeah. for me or to introduce, She's uh, but it's the same route. basic <laughs> <laughs> it's the same basic action she takes uh, when Guts first used the armor, but the difference is now that Shirke can see what Guts can see and, and interact with what Guts what's happening inside Guts. Well, it's not exactly the same, but... I, I guess in, in terms of effect, because yeah. before she yeah. urges Guts to regain control, yeah. here she's showing him how he can regain control. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the first time, yeah. basically, she goes inside the armor, she goes and grabs his self... Mm-hmm. And pulls him out basically, uh, and so he keeps using the armor for like a minute or thirty seconds. Then it deactivates. Uh, whereas here, it keeps activated, but she's yeah, she's basically keeping him uh, aware of his surroundings. So the effect is uh, is exactly the same. Yeah, it's it's also worth pointing out just for consistency that this is able to happen because of who she is, her proximity to the armor, and I think it's also her being there when this moment happens. This is not Shirke mind reading guts. This is not Shirke's mind diving into guts's mind. It's a, it's a it's a particular effect of in the way the armor is made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just to be clear, that's not what happens in three seventy two when she says, "I wonder how guts is doing." Let me just take a mental peek inside guts' mind real quick. There he is. Oh, that's what he's thinking about. Okay, well, see ya. That sounds bogus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh... She, she's going inside the armor, basically, or in this case, because she's grabbed down the armor and because she's a magic user and probably has, like, uh, facility of, uh, not facility, but basically it's easy for her. She's got a certain, she's used to letting go of her body of light. 
of basically doing an astral projection. So when she grabs on, her spirit is taken over uh, within the armor because it activates while she's holding on to it. So it's really a byproduct of her being a witch and being there at that time while this action is occurring. And it's really... What I like about it is it's accidental, basically. It's not something she planned to do. She doesn't even understand what's going on at first. But it ends up being useful. And she ends up using it. And that's that's how things often are in real life. People do a lot of accidental discoveries. So I like that how it was portrayed. Mm -hmm. This is exactly how I felt when I first used the magic eye technique in the mall when I was looking at (laughs) a picture of a boat. (laughs) My eyes crossed and I could see it. And I can do this because I'm me, because I have special ability to see beyond (laughs) into the world of 3D. Um, I have to point out the, there's a panel when uh, Guts lands on a, a mast of a sinking ship uh, on one of these pages. Just before we see the reveal of Shuriken in his eyes, a full page. I really like that one uh, where he's just enveloped by his cape that's floating with the, the, the fire and smoke. Uh, it just looks great. The middle panel of the page. I just love it. Yeah. I love it too. It's a really good one. I like it. I, I like it even better than Volume 28's cover, which I know people love Volume 28's cover. Because he's he looks menacing here. He doesn't yeah. look sleepy like the statue version. If this is, <laughs> yeah, he, lo- he looks like a monster. Which yeah, yeah, is the, is the effect Mira was going for. And uh, yeah, yeah. G- just generally lots of great art in this page when he's going through the macar. I mean, I know it's, it's gross, but I really love that two page spread of him going through the eyes. The one where it's landing with splatters of blood. Uh, yeah, just great art, and also. Worth pointing out is we see uh, when he's jumping into another Makar's mouth, we see that shot of the, his helmet with the mask open and there's just black inside. And you see mm. some kind of tissue-like membrane that's over where his face would be. And I like that we get to see that effect that shows us basically what it's like when when he's not in the halfway mode that Shuke managed to, to produce, where his actual face is covered in some kind of black fluid uh, and you can't actually see him. Mm-hmm. Right. On that same page, when he's doing the leap into the mouth, uh, you see that he dropped his stuff behind, like a little tiny little sh- slash away panel of him dropping his belts and uh, ammo and all that yeah. kind of stuff. He always does that. Whenever, yeah, yeah, I know. Whenever the ammo activates, he does it. I think it's a product of how Serpico, um, I'd say, reworked the way his equipment is attached. You see it in the winter in the cabin. Uh, there's a really small panel was like, oh, thanks for like helping me uh, set, set things up like that. And so whenever the ammo activates, you, the, the equipment is always dropped. Mm-hmm. Not much more for me. It's a very action-oriented one with tons of art and big... Oh, 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 I remember what I was going to say. There's a lot of visual emphasis on the action, Makes sense. It's a manga, two page. But what happens with Shirke when she goes into his mind, like the moment it happens, it's just a little tiny little panel, you know, like it's a, it's a pretty big thing that's happening, but he chose, chooses to kind of minimize it visually uh, so that he can do the big full page reveal at the end. I thought that was pretty cool. Like you're not sure exactly what happens with Shirke until the end when you see her in the armor. I thought that was clever of him to do that, to separate that. Hmm, what? What, what happened with Shirke? And then you see it and you're like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, for it's sure. True. Classic case. Classic case mm-hmm. of not bait and switch, but you show something, you don't show the result of it. People want to know. At the same time, they're glad to read what they're reading. And then at the end, boom, reveal, and boom, it's a cliffhanger. 
Yep. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That's it for me. Fantastic. The next episode is called, uh, I'm going to really screw up the pronunciation. Uh, anyway, it translates to Wizard General. <laughs> Paramish, Paramecium Senpai. <laughs> Paramashira Senani. Thank you so much. All right. Shirke discovers that she was pulled away from her physical body into guts when the berserker armor activated. She witnessed an un she witnesses an unending swirl of sharp monstrous teeth before her, and she realizes this must be what guts perceives when he is in this state fighting the makara. Meanwhile, guts' comrades watch as he leaps from monster to monster, slashing away ferociously. Serpico once again he frets over what may happen once he runs once guts runs out of enemies. Would he turn on his allies again? Suddenly, guts gets whacked by a makara's trunk and bitten into. Before he becomes a meal, guts stabs the monster through the eye from inside its mouth. Guts leaps away and takes a moment to recover. Just then, Akushan's ship approaches. Guts hops on the bowsprit and is greeted by an old bearded Kushan man floating in midair, who is amazed that Guts took out all the Makara. The man, who identifies himself as Wizard General Daiba, notes that Guts isn't just your average swordsman. What's more, he sees that Guts is wrapped in what he calls the Prana of Durga. Daiba points out that the magic Shirke used to take care of the Daka differs from his own magic, and he decides to use his own abilities to ascertain what incantations this group is capable of. Now, I've always been a fan of times when Shirke in her astral form gets pulled into Guts' mind like this, and obviously this is the first time, and I think that her point of view here is so valuable to readers in times like this. It's a real treat to get a de- de- depiction of what Guts sees in this berserker state. It, the never-ending rows of teeth is such a violent, terrifying image, and you would sort of get a... You understand why Guts would be flipping flipping all around him, just trying to shred everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Daiba's appearance here is one of many oh shit moments in this part of the story you know just looking at his entrance you get the sense that Shirke may have met her match the way he effortlessly floats midair casually surmising why the Makara were so easily taken down it gives readers a sense that this guy means serious business plus his character design visually indicates that he's everything that Shirke isn't first of all he's, he's pretty ripped He's, he's thin, but he's muscular. Uh, his face is drawn in such a way that shows he is ancient beyond the years a man should be allowed to live. God only knows how much experience he has. The word master comes to mind, and it makes me wonder what might have happened if Shirke were to contend with someone on Flora's level. Um, I like the fact that... Uh, another thing is I like the fact that despite... Shirke's words of reassurance to Serpico, his fears are not put to rest. It's a really, it, it's a real moment, and uh, it, it shows that um, 
she has to demonstrate to Serpico that she can actually prevent Guts from lashing out on his comrades again. Um, and it's been said time and time again, but Miro was a master on so many levels. Taking a close look at the Kushan ship's design was a blaring reminder of the amount of research and practice that must have gone into crafting the world of Berserk. There's so many weapons, buildings, ships, and monsters in the series, and there are so many uh, real-world design influences and from all around the world, from all different points of time, both real and from legends, and it never ceases to just blow my mind. I was wondering what you guys thought. Well, that was a, a load. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I really love that Daiba's introduction for first things first. Uh, that being said, I always felt. I remember back then when we first saw him, I was like, "Shook is gonna fuck this guy up. She's gonna show him what it's real magic's like." But uh, he ends up being very resourceful, and yeah, his introduction is pretty cool. Especially the fact he's actually levitating. It's like, damn, <laughs> damn. Uh, same thing as you, the, um, the ship's design is very impressive that, that we mentioned earlier. Um, I also like the fact Guts gets actually, like, he doesn't just massacre the, the Makara, same thing as I mentioned earlier. He actually gets knocked, uh, knocked back and beaten and seriously wounded, which leaves a scar and so on. So it's, it's a reminder that he's not invincible or anything like that. So I like that very much. Um, I like also the way Shiroke sees the Makara and it's like, it's reminiscent of how we saw Guts uh, on the beach seeing the crocs when he was drowned in the, in that sea and he saw them as just these like, these kind of monstrous beings. So same kind of thing, like that very much. Of course, uh, love also the panel of, uh, his, like the almost he- helmet with her little uh, figure in it. Very nice. And I think that's uh, about it. Well, on the big page of all the teeth, the Langoliers page, uh, <laughs> we, we have this uh, all the tendrils coming off of them in a way that's just like Shirke when she's in her mm. body of light has a tendril. And it made me think, are we seeing the actual, you know, Ganeshka manipulation there? Oh, oh it's the connection yeah. between the, the um, Kushan magic users. I think it's just the trunks. What? Yeah, trunks. They've got trunks, you know, like. Oh, is that all it is? Yeah, oh. I think so. I was gonna say huh. that was I, that might be the connection to the magic magic users too, but now that you mention it, I guess I think they do I have trunks. The trunks, because they're all in the same exact positioning, like you're uniformly going up like that. But was there similar thing on the beach with the crocs? I'd have to go look. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, it'd be worth looking into. But my first thought was that it was a result of how they're being controlled. But anyway, just a tiny little detail. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, When Guts gets bitten by the Makara, I do remember thinking, that's a big deal. Like, damn, he got fucking chewed. And we see it. And we go go back to that wound a couple times in the next few episodes. Uh, it really got through the armor and we can actually see the armor healing itself. It has a little sound effect. Like it's like, I'm assuming it's kind of bending back into the shape it's supposed to be, you know, self healing T2 style. Um, but yeah, he got fucking bit, but also it was the last one. I think it was the last Makara. He was almost done cleanup crew, almost completed. And then damn it got chewed on. (laughs) 
uh, big mount, uh, spew happening at the time when he spits out blood. Big deal. So it felt like a big deal at the time. It oh, was yeah. a big deal. That's a lot of yeah. blood. Yeah, it, it ended up not being. Yeah, I mean, I think he's supposed to have like pierced his lung or something. Hmm. But yeah. Uh, yeah, he recovers well enough. I mean, we don't get to see it because it, it gets healed on the ship, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, well, so it's off screen. But uh, I think the yeah the implication is that it, it is a pretty big deal. But since he gets fried up by Ganishka and so on after that, yeah, I mean he gets fried by uh, Shuke using the Blaze Wheel's power, then by the lightning. It's so, cauterized. Yeah, he's practically dead by by the oh, time yeah. they get on the actual ship. When we first see uh, Daiba, I remember that one, the first panel that Shirke spots him in, it looks like Cthulhu, right? Cthulhu right there. Mm. Like the little beard thing and you got to see the little eyes. Looks like a big exposed brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's some kind of Cthulhu power happening here. And he's it comes ni- from the sea. He's a Nilithid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it's not what ended up happening. And the water effect comes from something we already know later. But yeah, I remember thinking like, oh, wow, that's kind of Cthulhu. Like, cool. It's just a misdirection thing yeah um daiba says something pretty particular to gut saying that he uses the prana of durga and prana is like the odd for kushan territories and why is it durga you know i thought i thought that was interesting because it's like there's kind of a, an equivalency happening for how they describe certain powers you know so like we attribute the state of berserk to ancient warriors that went berserker right right durga would be kind of a cultural equivalency for parallel or parallel for Kushan territories for that same kind of effect, Durga being associated with destruction. So yeah, Dur- Durga is, interesting. A, is a warrior goddess basically in uh, Hinduism. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it makes sense. As for Prana, yeah, it's basically just the equivalent to Odd. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's the same, uh, or should I say Odd? It's the same, uh, same kanji for it. Yeah, cool. Other than that, yeah, the introduction of Daiba, he seems very just interesting. Hmm. He's intrigued by the system of magic that's different from mine and he wants to know more. So it's not like he's full of revenge and hatred for smashing all these creatures. He's like, Oh, interesting. Hmm. I wonder how you guys will uh, respond to this. And then that's when the fight starts. He's, he's I like the attitude. He's quite confident. Mm-hmm. Also likes that attitude because he gets, he gets fucked up after that. <laughs> so that's a part he, picks I the, like. he picks the fight and gets fucked, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And to answer your question, Gabs, when you said you wonder what would happen against someone like Flora, I think he would get fucked. Mm-hmm. No, no, get... She's, he said if Shirke versus Flora. Yeah, well, I think, yeah. Right. I mean. You, did you really mean Shirke versus Flora? Because. Uh, not would... literally. What I meant was, uh, like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of, like, the, the, reading this for the first time kind of evokes that feeling in me where I, I, I saw Daiba just kind of floating there, just kind of completely badass. And Shirke is just like, you know, she's awesome, obviously, but this guy has had the experience and, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, that's what he's supposed to evoke, obviously. Uh, yeah. I'm special in my reactions that I was rooting for Shirke. From the get-go, but yeah, the, the thing is, what's interesting about it is that he talks about how basically he's using a different type of magic, but my analysis at the time, which is still the same today, is that he's basically, he doesn't know what he's talking about, essentially. Like, he's got certain practices and he can do a number of things, like he can charm animals, 
he can charm animals and so on. And we see that also uh, later on after Fantasia occurs. Uh, and, and so it is the case with the Kundalini. You know, it's a, it's a snake. He's charmed, basically. Also, he says it was gifted to him by, by Genshka. But anyway, that's where he derives his power from. And he's got some level of controls, which allows him to levitate and so on. But like he doesn't have an understanding of uh, what Shuriki does, which is go, let go of a body of light uh, deeper into the astral world and actually summon uh, more powerful beings. And so not having that level of knowledge and not even understanding what's going on shows to me that he's got basically a huge lack. There's like a huge gaping hole in his knowledge of the magical world. But that's interesting in and of itself that in spite of that, he was able, thanks to Ganeshka's magic, to cobble up something that's quite powerful and using, of course, uh, the Kundalini's power. So all of that together makes uh, for an interesting, very interesting encounter. And in my opinion, at least more interesting than if it were just, you know, Shuriki versus someone like Shuriki who has the same type of abilities and they just, you know what I mean? Like right. trading similar types of power. That could be interesting too, but the fact it's someone that comes from a very different background makes it all the more interesting. Yeah, he can. it's it's different. It's potent, but it's different in how it is potent, the yeah. way that he's, his magic works, you know? Yeah, and a big part of, of what made that sequence interesting to me is that at first, Shuriki doesn't know what's going on. She's like, wow, he... He managed to cast this spell so quickly. What's going on? How does he do it? And so as they manage to walk around his powers, then it's revealed it's a Kundalini who does it. Mm-hmm. And that that is so cool to me. I'm actually, I think I'm, so I love Daiba. I love Daiba, but I think I'm more of a fan of the Kundalini than Daiba himself. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that guy. I really love that little creature. Yeah. I hope he has a whole family of Kundalinis back home. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, I'll go ahead and get started on the next episode so we can talk more about this fight because it is very exciting and it all kicks off in this next episode. Um, Dark Horse translated it as Eastern Magic. We translated it as Oriental Magic. I'm just going to say up front, I feel weird saying Oriental. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just putting that out there. Well, Feels it, like it's... Yeah, I think hmm? it's the same meaning, so... It's just yeah, like, but it carries a different connotation these days. Because it used to be, like, in the 40s. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know, it, I understand. Okay. I understand. But uh, I forgot who came up with that title, but... It, it was is, you. <laughs> well, I must have consulted with Paula, so... Okay. I mean, in, the, in the thread, we just you discussed it. He said, we translated it as Oriental, so... Yeah. And you, in any case, it's the same meaning. So, Eastern Magic yep. is fine. Eastern Magic... Uh, Guts leaps at Daiba, but with a single word, he summons a water spout from the sea, lifting Guts into the air. As he falls, Shirke realizes she can try to bring Guts back to his senses, and she climbs along the beast's back and pulls back the part of Guts' eye that's enshrouded by the armor's odd, and he's able to regain control. Falling from high above the docks, he turns the dragon slayer in front of him, extending the surface area for the wind to hit, and it allows him to steer into the mass of a ship, where he lands in the sail, cushioning what would have been a fatal fall. The others notice something seems different, and Serpico wonders if Guts is still under the armor's influence or if something else had happened. Daiba summons more water spouts one after the other, but Guts is able to evade them by hopping from ship to ship and Makara to Makara. But in the chaos of all this shaking, the um, waves are crashing against the other ships, and a flaming ship's mast is about to fall on the group. Guts arrives just in time, catching the mast with the dragon slayer and shoving it aside. 
That's the end of the episode. Quite a fiery, action-packed ending here where Guts arrives just in time in superhero mode to catch this massive falling mast. Yeah. So visually, there's so many memorable things here. In particular, the uh, you know the page, the episodic depiction of this poster we saw of Guts and Shirke, where she's pulling back his eye. So this fascinating look of Guts as Beast, but Guts eye in the place of the Beast's eye. It's so cool. That full page shot there, and also because Shirke's body of light is very defined, and Guts' projection of this Beast thing is very wavy. It's just like two different visual techniques because of their two different things. I thought that was so cool visually. Uh, Roderick notes that it takes dozens of men to lift the mass that Guts just caught and cast aside. So, and Guts remarks that he's going to feel that one in the morning. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's when he has, I didn't mention it, but that's when he has this unique new look that we discussed earlier in this episode here, a sort of hybrid inactive and inactive states of the armor uh, with the helmet slightly elongated, but not quite the kind that we're used to. And Guts features visible through the mask where they normally are, as we discussed, enshrouded by the black uh, tissue kind of thing. Um, I do like that Daiba immediately just like fucking trounces Guts with a, with a single word. He's in the sky. You know, this water spout pushes Guts into the sky. It must have been quite crazy to see that happen on shore with Guts' friends, like Guts being who he is, and then boom. Now he's flying in the clouds like, damn, what the fuck just happened? Mm. And Shirke quite rightly remarks on how quickly it happened because we know from when she sees Ged summon the rainstorm on the island, she's blown away by the speed of which that happens because she's equating that action with a kind of magic that she's familiar with. And to do that through the kind of method that she's used to, it would be a big deal. However, as we know, He's using something different. All he has to say is go, and the familiar does the natural magic part of this, mm. right? So except that's the secret of his sauce. Except what he says is om. Om? Is that what he says? Yeah, okay. it's, uh, you know, the f- stuff you do in yoga and, and mm-hmm. so on. Om. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know I could summon water spouts just by saying om. Well, <laughs> you, you need to have a kundalini for that. Yeah, yeah. I, um... I surprisingly don't have a ton of notes here because so much of the action is self-explanatory as Guts dodges things. But I do like this panel where he is dodging actively. It looks very un-Guts-like when he's throwing himself around. It looks like he's using the sword to kind of use momentum to make his jumps longer. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's interesting. He also slashes through... uh, I think he slashes through... I I forgot. He slashes through something at some point. I think that's the, the next episode. Yeah, maybe through one of the tornadoes. But yeah, he does all these kind of uh, basically jumping and contorting around these. Uh, I don't even know how to call them, actually, because they're not tornadoes, but they're like water spouts. I think that's the technical term. Yeah, you can call something like that a water spout. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So, yeah, very, very dynamic, uh, very interesting. And of course, that, that final reveal is really superhero like, like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pretty cool, pretty cool. One of the things also is in the previous episode, but I forgot to mention it, is when Daiba's talking, so we see what he's saying, but some people comment that they actually can't understand because it's, he's speaking his own language. <laughs> right. And I thought that was cool. And, and Mira shows uh, in some episodes that when Kushans talk, other people like don't understand it. So it's one of the things where for the reader, you get the benefit of seeing what he says, but the characters don't actually understand what he says. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I fell into a really dumb rabbit hole with a particular panel of this uh, episode near the beginning when, in the Dark Horse translation, Diva says, come on, come at me. Uh, for the longest time, I thought this was a reference to the come at me bro meme. And because it came... It came out around the same time. Koi, I think is what you'd say. Yeah, Koi. In, in Puella's translation, she says uh, something like, come on, uh, yeah. come on now, which I thought was obviously a much more appropriate translation. So I wondered if the Dark Horse translation was a, like a flavor reference to a meme. Come at me, bro. Come at me, bro. And I looked I mean, it, it up. is. In a way, it is, but not directly. Not you know? directly. <laughs> I looked it up because I'm insane. And apparently the meme came out in, in 2010, whereas the Dark Horse translation, <laughs> the volume was released in 2009. So I don't know why they thought that was a good idea. It wasn't even a reference to anything. Anyway, I'm done. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, come at me is a phrase that predates the meme. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah, true. I, I mean, what he says, you can, yeah, I mean, come Come at me, come on. Same thing, basically. These are almost, these are pretty synonyms. So, yeah. I'm glad you brought it up, though, because I forgot to mention that this, seeing this little panel, uh, I was reading the thread when back in the day when we were talking about it. I think it was 2006 for this episode. Anyway, um, I was, I was basically saying, I'm on Team Daiba, who's with me? If any, if I get enough people, I'm making a emoticon. And uh, I made one of this little panel here where he's moving his hand, which, of course, you can still use on the forum. Much beloved. Yeah. I remember thinking that fingers would be hard to animate in GIF form, and they were. But <laughs> it's pretty funny, though. Still on Team Daiba. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad Daiba's still around. I'm glad this was not it for him. This is an interesting uh, uh, conversation, but that should be kept for a different time. But I really didn't expect him to survive Ganishka, and I was uh, mm -hmm. quite surprised when he did. And I, also, at the same time, quite pleased. I was like, you know what? Why not? Interesting. But Yeah, uh, I think it's, cl it's clear he has more to him than the average, just like, you know, pushover guy. You know, there's a lot more yeah. character depth, I think, to be explored through him. Yeah, sure. But, I mean, because when he's introduced, he's introduced as being clearly uh, a servant of Ganeshka and deriving a, a large part of his power from him. So I was like, what? what's he going to do uh, if Ganeshka isn't around? And he's still doing some shit. He's still got his familiars and, you know, he can summon rats and so on. So mm -hmm. he's diminished, but still around. And I always thought that was interesting. And I was actually looking forward to seeing uh, what he could pull with Fantasia, because there's no lack of dangerous creator to charm. So that would have been that would have been quite interesting. Yeah, that's true. It's another reason he needed to be wiped from the map. You know, he should have been wiped from the map. Too well, much of an instigator. Too too powerful. <laughs> well, I mean, he yeah, for Griffiths, uh, he would uh, end up being a, a trouble eventually. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lovely episode, um, and this is the this is the true start of the Daiba fight. Yeah, which we'll get to in the next couple of podcasts. As this goes seamlessly into Ganeshka's arrival and seamlessly into the Apostles' arrival, so yeah, tons tons more to discuss. Mm -hmm. But I suppose that's it for the episode. If you have not checked out our Patreon, please do. It's over at Patreon.com/sknet. Azil, what's happening over there this week? Yeah, I posted some shikishi recently, some illustrations Mura did for a contest. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to, I think, Pola's almost done with an interview Mura gave to Asahi Shimbun in 2002. 
So we're going to pause that. And also last week we did uh, a mini podcast. Oh, yeah. That was around the similarities between the brand and the policy symbol and what that meant and why that was deliberate and other similarities between these symbols and other things in the world. So that was quite interesting in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I still need to finish that thread and post that. So for those people that can read that, the visual thread I'm making on that that whole topic. But yeah, go check that out at patreon.com slash SKNet. As Azil said, we do have mini podcasts, which are like 30 to thirty minutes to an hour long of just me and Azil just talking about random berserk stuff. Uh, if you like this podcast, it's a easy continuation of that stuff, that material. But that's it. We'll be back next month with uh, volume 31, part two, and we should be able to wrap the volume up with that one. Nice. And All right. See you in a month. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. The Skullcast is a production of Skullnight.net, a Berserk fan community. If you like what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash sknet. Donations there do not go towards the podcast, but instead toward our resident translator, Puela, who ensures that our members have access to high-quality, text-based translations of Berserk. Puela has also been translating interviews with Berserk's creator, Kentaro Miura. Many of these interviews have never been translated into English, so it's very exciting to read those. That kind of work simply wouldn't have happened without support from our donors. If you'd like to chip in a buck or two, please know that it all helps. Once again, that's patreon.com slash sknet. If you have a question or want to comment on the podcast, visit our forum, skullnet.net slash forum. Near the top, you'll see a section devoted to the podcast. There's always an active thread in there, so go ahead, leave a post, and someone's sure to respond quickly. Thanks for listening.